Hi everyone, my name is Njenga Hakina. I am the Africa Climate Editor at the China Global South Project. Just before we get to today's podcast, I want to update you on the work we are doing at CGSP. While there is extensive news coverage on China's relations with the United States, Europe, and the current situation involving Taiwan, the same cannot be said for its interactions with developing countries, also referred to as the Global South. Unfortunately, there is a lack of comprehensive reporting in this area, and this is precisely where our team comes in. We have a dedicated group of editors who are in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and who diligently report on these stories in real time every day. Furthermore, we make it a point to provide our content in three languages. We have it in English, in French, and in Arabic. If you'd like to join our growing community of readers from around the world, go to China Global South forward slash subscribe. And subscriptions start at just $19 a month. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com forward slash subscribe. Thank you. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden, in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, it has been a hideously busy week for many of you in Johannesburg. You are cleaning the streets, wiping down the windows, getting ready for the big shindig that's going to start next week when you have four out of the five leaders of the BRICS group, in addition to I don't know how many heads of state are going to be coming. I mean, at least I think something like 10 or 20 are going to be coming. Foreign ministers. This is the biggest diplomatic party that South Africa, I think, has thrown in recent memory. Now, what's interesting here, Kobus, is that all week you and I have been approached by a number of journalists asking us to share some of our views about what's going to happen in this BRICS summit. And I come at it with a slightly different view on all of this. I tell them, if you think that anything substantive is going to come out of this meeting, is there going to be a five-point action plan for X? Are they going to announce there's new measures and a timeline for this new fantasy BRICS currency that they're going to talk about? They may announce some memberships, possibly. But when you look back on the history of the BRICS, what has this thing whatever it is, ever done. Nothing. This is not a group that delivers substantive, actionable policies, plans, initiatives. And so we shouldn't expect anything substantive to come out of next Tuesday through Thursday's meeting when Xi Jinping, Cyril Ramaphosa, and you know the Skype video call from Vladimir Putin all get together with the Brazilian and Narendra Modi. It's just that's not what it's about. What I said, and Kobus, you and I had a really lively conversation earlier this week, is that this group is more about grievance politics. And the optics of the BRICS is just as important as the substance of it. And so when you see on Twitter all these 
self-righteous, sanctimonious Americans and Europeans saying, well, the BRICS, they don't mean anything. This is a stupid organization. I think they're missing the point. The point today is that this is about grievance politics, the same grievance politics that's fueling Donald Trump's rise to power in the MAGA movement, the same grievance politics that broke the British away from Europe through the Brexit movement, the yellow jackets in France. This is about grievance. And this is about people who are fed up and pissed off with the Western-led international order. And there is a long line to get into the BRICS in order to say, you don't like these guys, I don't like these guys. And this frustration with the system, to me, is what's going to come out and what we're going to hear next week. I agree in some respects and not in others. Like, I don't think that the kind of resentment that is leading Trumpism and the resentment that's leading BRICS is exactly the same resentment. But I do think there are overlaps. It's not the same resentment, but it's resentment. I mean, each of the grievances is different, but at the end of the day, it's frustration and grievance that's binding them together. Because what else brings together the Indians, the Brazilians, the South Africans, and the Russians and the Chinese? What else do they have in common? Well, the other thing they have in common is that they're all massive emerging economies, right? And that they're keystone economies in their particular regions. So each of them brings a whole kind of set of kind of local neighborhood connections with them to the table. So in that sense, the enlargement of BRICS that would come up is interesting because it'll show like which other kind of neighborhoods are coming to the table too. For me, one of the most powerful things about BRICS is exactly this kind of squishiness and almost arbitrariness of the of the concept because you know what it achieves is it it basically sets out an idea you know into the world and then it decides what it wants to do with the idea and, and in that sense it's very similar to the belt and road initiative you know kind of which is also essentially a big idea within a lot of logistics that followed in its wake yeah but the belt and road initiative has a trillion dollars of commitments behind it and airports ports roads railways that we can actually see yeah there's nothing substantive other than a mid-level multilateral development bank based in shanghai that came out of the BRICS. well a mid-level multilateral development bank based in shanghai is something i guess so you know it's something that these countries didn't have as a central asset before and you know kind of from an african perspective like adding that to the mix is powerful so we'll see. But I think what it does make clear is that the queue to try and get into BRICS reveals, I think, a kind of a lack of expectation, maybe, or like a kind of a, a certain kind of lack of excitement about what dealing mostly with the West has to offer one nowadays as a developing country. And I think that is very revealing. Well, let's get a perspective on this, because you and I are not going to agree on this. This is going to be one of the few issues, Cobus, in the history of this podcast that you and I don't agree on. Let's get a different perspective. Somebody who's also following this closely from Johannesburg, Emmanuel Matambo, is an old friend of our show. Many of you have heard him on the program if you're a longtime listener. He's the research director at the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. He's also an expert in Zambian politics, which we're also going to talk about today. So make sure you stick with us. Matambo, so great to have you back on the show. It's wonderful to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Eric. And um, thank you very much to Kobus as well. I saw Kobus at least more recently than I did see you, Eric. So thank you very much for the kind invitation. Yes, we saw each other last year, but I'll be back in Johannesburg later this fall, so I'm looking forward to seeing you. Okay, where do you stand? I say that the importance of the BRICS is more about the optics and the rhetoric that comes out of it, not the substance of it. 
Because at the end of the day, any organization that includes India and China as members is not going to be an effective organization, given the fact that these guys hate each other. I mean, Xi and Modi can't even shake hands, much less be in a room together. And then we're talking about this group being actually something effective. It's not going to be like NATO or the European Union or one of these multilateral groups that has big agendas with lots of action items. That being said, you heard from Kobus. He says there is something substantive to it, even if it's just a mid-level development bank in Shanghai, but it does provide a forum to express these grievances with the Western-led system. Where do you fall on this, and what are you looking for in terms of the BRICS? Well, the BRICS could be put in a historical perspective, especially when it comes to South Africa's inclusion. I mean, when Brazil, Russia, India, and China stood their close relationship at the beginning of this millennia, it was mostly about what Kobu said, these being strategic economies in their respective regions. But then in terms of what brings them together in the world of diplomacy, the optics of the appearances, most of the times are just as good as the substance itself. A lot of countries, especially of the emerging world, want to show that they have alternatives to Western laid development uh, perspectives and platforms and even templates. So that being said, a lot of them look at the BRICS countries as being, okay, offering us maybe a template or an alternative way of developing, so to say. Can I push you a little bit there? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is a really important point. You say that, but meanwhile, most developing countries that are in debt distress are lining up and knocking on the IMF's door. They're not knocking on China's door or Russia's door or India's door. And so if the BRICS does provide this alternative that you speak of, what is it? If you look at African countries, we are in a dilemma because politically and historically, we are inescapably linked to the West. I will give you an example of Zambia, where it come from. We had the principle of humanism under Kenneth Kaunda, and because of that, a lot of people usually said Kenneth Kaunda was twist-leaning. People were saying he's probably a socialist. But guess what? 96% of our trade was actually with the West, and only 4% of our trade was with the East, China, the Soviet Union, and everything. So that carried itself even into Africa as it is at the moment. Unfortunately, though, Eric, I should emphasize the fact that there is something cynical to Africa's endorsement of what I call an alternative growth platform. I call it cynical because out of desperation or a fear of Western Asia, we say, okay, we are East-leaning. But then when it comes to the tangibles of economic relief and stuff like that, we rely on the West being a proven, reliable partner and a source of FDI. So that is where it is. Politically, we tend to rely more on the East because we are trying to escape from Sasha, unfortunately, even though when it comes to trade, economics, the tangibles themselves of African development, we tend to lean more towards the IMF. We will talk more about that, obviously, when we talk about the Zambian case, but that is how I would respond for now to that. So looking forward to next week, I know this is a somewhat difficult question, but then it is a question that all of us are being asked at the moment. But what are some of your expectations for next week's summit, particularly around the issue of the currency discussions and then the membership enlargement that seem to be the big issues at the moment? Let us start with a new development bank, that is uh, the BRICS Bank, and uh, it made quite a significant appointment in making Dilma Rousseff to head the bank, the former president of Brazil. That has uh, some historical importance as I zero into the issue of currency, because the issue of de-dollarization could be traced to June 2012, when Brazil proposed the establishment of a BRICS contingency reserve pool, 
and then a bilateral swap arrangement. And then the BRICS set up a study group for 2013 to look at that. And that eventuated into the contingent reserve arrangement. And then 2014, a year later, the new development bank was established. So that is just a historical background to where we are in, in terms of the BRICS bank and then this clamor to de-dollarize. What I expect next week in terms of that, obviously, is more impetus on uh, how the countries are trying to map their way out of it. But another thing is that there will be bigger elephants though in the room rather than the clamor for de-dollarization. And um, this takes me back to what Eric said about the lack of substance in the BRICS. I think the issues that are likely to dominate in the discussions next week are the increase in BRICS membership. And that is likely to be pushed by Russia, by the way, because uh, Russia wants more support at the United Nations. We have seen that it has lost quite some support from the African countries at the UN last year in April and uh, in, in October, quite a significant number of African countries voted against Russia's activities in Ukraine. So we would expect that obviously Russia would want members such as Egypt, Kazakhstan, Niger, Algeria, and Iran, Saudi Arabia to be on its side. And how better to do that than to accelerate their application to the BRICS membership? So those are just some of the things that are likely to dominate the discussion. When it comes to the issue of delinking the BRICS countries from the dollar, that will be more informed than substance at the moment. Yeah. Let's remember, there is nothing stopping any BRICS country now or the group from not using the dollar. And that's issue number one. They can de-dollarize any moment they want to. Yes. The other thing is that when you look at the profile of many of the BRICS countries, these are countries that are actually short in dollars. So they're eager to get rid of the dollar simply because they don't have a lot of dollars. And so that raises the question that if you're going to have an alternate currency, you're going to have to have something that gives it credibility and gives it value. And so they're talking about making a BRICS SDR, much like the IMF's SDRs. But who's got the excess cash to contribute into a massive pool of funds to do this, to backstop this currency? The Chinese are not rich, by the way, anymore. They don't have huge amounts of surplus capital just sitting around the way they did 10 years ago. The Russians do from their oil, but at the same time, they're paying for a very expensive war. India's got enormous needs at home. It's not going to put tens of billions of dollars into a, an alternative currency. And let's not forget that the Indians themselves are very close to the United States on key strategic issues, specifically aligned with China, member of the Quad and whatnot there. And Modi was just at the White House getting along fabulously with uh, Joe Biden. And then we have the question of South Africa, not exactly rich either. And the Brazilians, do they really want to put a lot of money into this as well? So where would the money come from to create a currency? I just contend that this makes for great rhetoric, great grievance. People love talking about de-dollarization and screw you, Uncle Sam, we hate you. The world's not fair. I don't disagree with that. This system is brutally, brutally unfair that the Americans get to print their currency and they get to do anything they want with it. And they get to tell you South Africans and you Zambians, you know what, stop printing money. But when we run into problems, we can do it. The hypocrisy is glaring. That doesn't stop the reality that the BRICS don't have the resources to do this, in my view. I mean, uh, if you look at what has been happening, especially in the case of South Africa, this the resumption of Russia's conflict with Ukraine. South Africa has abstained on both votes at the United Nations and then obviously decided now, finally, that uh, Vladimir Putin should not come to the BRICS summit. They say it was by mutual agreement. Well, it could be that, but then there are certain entailments to that. 
One of the things that Putin's physical absence entails is the fact that South Africa has actually yielded to the pressure from the International Criminal Court and the pressures well from the West that have said, well, do not repeat what you did in 2015 when you let Omar al-Bashir leave South Africa without being arrested. Because South Africa has actually been vacillating. When it is pushed to the corner by the ICC, it says, okay, we're going to withdraw from the ICC. The moment that episode passes, the discussion is quietly dropped and South Africa peacefully remains in the ICC. This year, the same thing. South Africa says, we want a just world order. We want to remain in the BRICS. We want to ponder. We want to force for the interests of the developing world. But what did South Africa do this year? Around the time that it issued a formal invitation to Vladimir Putin, almost at the same time, it was sending a delegation to the United States to go and explain South Africa's stance uh, on the Russia and Ukraine conflict. That just shows that, yes, there is a lot of optics in the BRICS, but that obviously takes me back to my previous point. Probably that optics is actually the substance of what we can expect from the BRICS. And South Africa's uh, vaunted and much advertised clamor for independence in the developing world and disengaging from depending on the Western world. Yeah, I tend to agree. But I also think that one needs to really take a hard look at what the optics actually communicate, right? Kind of because I feel like so much of the kind of BRICS discussion essentially is a lot of observers setting up a kind of a straw man and then, you know, kind of like either being like, okay, they, they, they're trying to set up a currency that replaces the dollar or they're trying to set up a, an anti-G7, which I think neither of those two are necessarily what these optics mean. I recently wrote a column for China Project in which I argued that I think increasingly now now, like as, as we come closer to the summit, I don't know if a discussion about a full BRICS currency is even really on the table anymore. Like what one sees much more is all of these individual countries leaning into promoting their national currency, like trade in their national currency. And, you know, all setting up like kind of regional currencies, the way that, that Brazil and, and Argentina are planning a, a regional currency. I'm not sure whether, you know, kind of whether that will happen, but that's what they're saying they're doing. Meanwhile, even India is leaning hard into rupee-based trade, particularly with countries that don't have a lot of dollars, right? So what I argued was that we're not looking at some kind of weapon to slay the dollar. What we're looking at is a thousand million billion paper cuts to dollar hegemony, which it won't kill the dollar. It just will make it, its life less comfortable, simply because what we're seeing is increasingly this kind of like provincialization of trade, where all of these strong, like South Africa through AFC, CFDA, India through its connections, China with Russia, and through the Embridge, like digital RMB project that's developing with the UAE and Thailand, or with like lending a bunch of UN to Argentina to then pay off the IMF. All of these are ways in which there's just the options to not trade in dollars just proliferated, right? Kind of, And that's essentially all they're doing. They don't have to say the dollar. It's just now suddenly it's a world where the dollar isn't the only thing anymore. That's pretty much what the same thing that BRICS does. It's like, it's, it's just simply now a world where the G7 isn't the only thing anymore. They don't have to kill the G7. They just offer an alternative. That's all, I think. You say that, but yet the RAN, the shilling, and the Naira in particular, and it's the same here in Vietnam with the Dong, have fallen double digits since the beginning of the year. And so if you're a trader, would you rather buy a currency that is falling double digits in value from the time that you bought a product to the time when you have to sell it? Or would you buy a currency like the dollar, as flawed as it is, as inequitable as it is, but it has not fallen double digits in value? I mean, there's the politics and the Twitter rhetoric 
And then there's the reality of actually doing business. And this is the reason why the UN is at like, what, 4%, 5% of global currency transactions? I mean, I agree with you in principle. Ideologically, I agree with you. But at the end of the day, I think business people who are making transactions are going to be reluctant to buy into currencies that are fluctuating so much and that are fundamentally weak. Yeah, but I'm not sure we're disagreeing, right? Kind of because a lot of this trade is happening in the absence of dollars anyway. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. Emmanuel, do you think that the kind of BRICS currency debate is to a certain extent a kind of a false debate? I think it's a frustration and grievance debate, but yeah. At the moment, I think it is just a precipitate reaction to the West, really. I would be surprised, actually, if it took uh, any prominence at the oncoming summit. The grievance that we are seeing dates back to the insular politics that have come up in the West, dating back to the, we can even talk it back to the 2008 global recession, and then we have the United States electing Donald Trump, a deeply cantankerous president. We have uh, Britain walking out of the European Union. So much of what is happening right now in the BRIC, the debate, I think the BRICS has finance ministers in its ranks who can easily understand how sustainable some of this rhetoric is, especially in the short term anyway, to really appreciate that the debate is probably, probably premature at the moment, and it will not really help to give it more prominence that it really deserves at the summit. What I think will come up at the summit is just the resources and uh, the caliber of the players that want to join the BRICS and the resources that they master. We're talking about Iran here with the countless energy resources. Egypt, we're talking about uh, Egypt, a very big producer of food, a reliable partner in the Arab, Israeli, and dynamic in the Middle East. We're talking about Algeria, massive gas reserves. We're talking about Argentina, the second biggest economy in Latin America. What are the resources that these countries are bringing? I think that is what might dominate what might happen at the BRICS next week. Okay. Well, one of the other issues, again, is this enlarging of the BRICS, as you mentioned. A couple predictions that I'll make. I don't think Iran is going to be admitted because the moment that any group that has Russia, China, and Iran will be immediately perceived as overtly hostile to the United States. And I'm not convinced that South Africa and Brazil want to step in the middle of that. And I think the United States does have some influence with India. So I think it's a fantasy that Iran and Venezuela are ever going to be admitted into this organization because at the end of the day, the United States still has some clout. And the BRICS is not ostensibly intended to be an anti-Western organization. That is not what the Brazilians and the South Africans really want to put themselves in the middle of. Certainly Russia and China do, but I would be very surprised if they admitted Iran and Venezuela on the first round, if at all. I actually haven't studied deeper the implications of the individual applicants, but I would think, even if Iran was not invited, I would think that Russia would be very interested in expanding the BRICS, obviously, with countries that are amenable to Russia's position in its conflict against Ukraine. I'm just not sure about India, because India is actually instinctively anti-China, by the way, as you rightly put it, Eric. And uh, there are obviously some rumors about how China forced uh, South Africa to join the BRICS through the back door, through uh, China's forcefulness and so on. So probably India would have to would want to have more say on who would be admitted to the BRICS if it would be expanded out. Also, yeah, we, are, we, we look forward to a very interesting debate about, about that. And don't forget that the BRICS is a consensus-based organization, so any decisions have to be agreed upon by all five of the members. Imagine now you're going to expand this to 10, 15 countries, 
And getting consensus on that is going to be even more difficult. And we see that in the European Union. We see it at the United Nations. So the concerns that whatever effectiveness the BRICS has today will only diminish as it enlarges and has to basically then get all of the countries to agree. And in today's era, that is very difficult. Let's move on because we're running short on time here. One of the issues that should be on the BRICS agenda, but probably will not be on the agenda in South Africa when they meet next week, is the question of debt. And this is a topic that you follow very closely in your work as a Zambian researcher following the two-year odyssey that Zambia took in order to get its debt restructuring deal that was agreed to earlier this year in Paris. It has been now, what, two months, two and a half months since that deal was signed? We have not received the full details of the restructuring deal. Hishilema seems to be going on to some kind of victory lap saying it's all done. The anxiety around Zambia's debt circumstance has faded considerably. We cover this every single day in our coverage, and there's been very little discussion. What is going on with the debt situation in Zambia post-Paris? I'm laughing because it's no longer an intellectual thing for me. It's more like a personal thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, Zambia has been blundering from one debt crisis to another, right from the 1990s when we decided to haphazardly privatize the mines, by the way, with Yichilema, ironically, being one of the evaluators for Zambia's mines. And that is why up to now, a lot of Zambians who have memories of the 1990s sometimes just unjustifiably so usually blame Michilema for selling the country's copper, literally, for a song. And that was under Chiluba's Zambia Privatization Agency, for which Michilema worked as evaluator, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Ed Galungu, his predecessor as president, was one of the lawyers that were contracting the people who wanted to buy uh, Zambia's mines. We were in massive debt until 2004, when through the highly indebted poor countries mechanism, we had a debt write-off. Our economy started growing exponentially at an average of about 7.4% from 2004 to 2011 when the Patriotic Front, the immediate past government in Zambia, came to power. And then we racked up massive amounts of debt because Michael Sata, the first Patriotic Front president, was under enormous pressure. He had overpromised during his 10 years in opposition to build Zambia's infrastructure. And he went on this infrastructure begging spree now from China, from the Export-Import Bank especially. And he died, left us with white elephants to a large extent. But he died only three years into his presidency in October 2014. Ed Galongo succeeded him as president, took debt borrowing to another level, to alarming levels, forcing the IMF country representative at the time, Alfredo Bodin, to say, now hold on, how are you going to repay this debt that you are borrowing most of it from China? Well, Edgar Lungo, in very, very familiar fashion, he was quite an irritable politician towards the end of his tenure, asked the IMF to withdraw Alfredo Bodin from Zambia, and Alfredo Bodin was withdrawn from Zambia. The situation did not have any let-up. In November 2020, Zambia had the uh, embarrassing distinction, obviously, of being the first country to default on its euro bond under COVID restrictions. So that compounded the situation that led to the youth, especially to coalesce around uh, Akainde Ichilema, affectionately known as HH, as someone who would dig Zambia out of this hole into which we had found ourselves. The patriotic front government could not disclose the amount of debt we had, especially towards uh, the bilateral trade, especially towards the external players. I couldn't even disclose that. Akainde Ichilema became president. He didn't even know the quantum of the debt that we had. 
the IMF in 2021 said our date, our bilateral date is $8 billion. In France, on the 22nd of June, when this deal was consummated, this bailout deal was consummated, they said the date is $6.3 billion. That is what, the, what was reported there. So I think it is very premature for Akainde Ichilema to go on this victory lap, as you likely call it. He has a knack, by the way, for self-congratulations. I should say that. Even when he announced the death penalty in Zambia, he called for a very big luncheon at State House. Quite a bizarre arrangement, but yeah. Anyway, he does that. And I think a lot of people, especially his followers in Zambia and the West, are kind of um, supporting him in that because they were so antagonized by Lungu that anyone who had succeeded in uh, Lungu, even if it wasn't going to be Ichilema, was going to be the main guy, which is a very mistaken perception. Well, what is happening at the moment with the debt is that we have seen a spiking levels of commodity prices, especially fuel, from around uh, March to June, there were fewer price hikes almost on a monthly basis. Today, Milimil, the staple food of Zambia, has grown almost exponentially, and a lot of people are actually struggling to buy the staple food. I saw a cartoon yesterday from one of Zambia's newspapers saying the price of Milimil is so high, you would think as if it's on drugs. Um, <laughs> but that's a hilarity on a rather desperate and serious situation in Zambia. And I think the government of Zambia should be very effective, especially in messaging. What exactly does it entail? Because there will be some belt tightening measures that will bite, especially ordinary Zambians, that a lot of Zambians do not foresee at the moment. And are you seeing any kind of like increase in resentment of China in relation to all of this? Because, of course, you know, from the outside, everyone from U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, you know, onwards, were all explicitly blaming China for all of this. So is, is that being echoed in domestic discourse within Zambia as well? So from members of the patriotic front to them, China was really a darling, even to HLM himself. Remember, he is very much saddled with this debt that he cannot wish away the first dignitary to visit him, even before Ichilema was inaugurated, was actually the Chinese ambassador. But China's take, by the way, on Zambia's debt restructuring process has been very curious and uh, it's been very interesting. France and South Africa have been very active, have been very vocal around it. China, whom Zambia owes about 4.1 billion, by the way, of that 6.3 billion of debt, has been very quiet and the debt restructuring process has been even underreported in China, if it has been mentioned, by the way, at all, especially by the government of China itself. So there hasn't been resentment to China. There is resentment against the patriotic front government because it is the one that saddled Zambia with all this massive debt. Resentment against China in Zambia tends to be more at a subaltern or subnational level rather than at a national level. At a national level, the successive governments of Zambia, from the movement for multi-party democracy that was in power from 1991 to 2011, and then the patriotic front, are the ones who have been the object of the rancor, rather than China itself at a state level. So here's the big problem with the situation in Zambia right now, is that Zambia's economy is predicated largely on copper exports. It is one of the largest copper-producing countries in the world. A lot of that copper goes to, where else? China. The problem is, is that China's economy right now is facing some very serious headwinds, and copper buying is down, which is one of the reasons why copper prices are now at a six-week low. If copper prices stay as low as they've been for the past month, month and a half, and there are some forecasts that it may be that way, especially if the Chinese stimulus to jumpstart the economy doesn't work as expected, 
then Zambia is going to have a difficult time to generate the revenue that it needs to pay back the loans and to meet the obligations that it laid out in the June debt restructuring deal. So keep an eye on the Chinese economy and keep an eye on copper prices. And those are the two indicators that are going to lead you to whether or not Zambia is going to quickly or slowly get out of the current mess that it's in. Let's get your take on that. Yes, I just wanted to add to that. I mean, uh, if you look at the forecast from the African Development Bank, they're a bit upbeat, uh, saying Zambia will grow by about 4% in 2023. I don't believe that. Uh, I know the economy grew by about 3% in 2022. That is just an indictment, by the way, on what Zambia has failed to do right from independence. Up to today, our I, I think COPA accounts for up to about uh, 78% of our foreign revenue. I mean, that is actually an judgment on a country that has been free since 1964. It has large resources. It is an enormous land for the small population that it has. Zambia is about 752,000 square kilometers with a population of 19 million people. So it, it, it is three times bigger than the, the United Kingdom, almost the same size as Texas. But then we do not use that land for more sustainable purposes. How much have we um, contributed? How much have we made sure that agriculture, for example, contribute towards our national GDP? At the time when Mugabe was running farmers out of Zimbabwe, we had a golden opportunity to make use of those farmers to make sure that they come to Zimbabwe, create an enabling environment for them. We have vast resources of inland water resources as well, much of which is actually uh, fresh water resources. How are we doing in order to diversify the economy and win ourselves, so to say, from this chronic dependency on copper? I have not seen any meaningful ways done by uh, Akainde Ichilema. He seems to have this drive. He has now come up with a ministry of uh, technology. But yes, in as much as we need that, but those are service-based specialties that we need in Zambia, but are not really things that will give us a quick turnaround. What we need as a quick turnaround is investment in more agriculture. He's very big in terms of cattle ranching himself. So he probably would know this, but whether or not he's going to put more impetus on this is really left for anyone's guess. But as long as we depend on copper, we are just leading ourselves to economic suicide. And linking on to that, like a few months ago, there was this memorandum of understanding signed between Zambia, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the US government that they're going to locate copper refining in those countries, like I think in some kind of cross-border facility. Has there been any development on that at all? For as far as I am concerned, the last time I read about that was actually in the Mining Weekly. I think it was on the 18th of January this year. <laughs> After that, I haven't really heard any, any, anything about that. But uh, I don't know. Maybe there is something afoot that is appearing that the government is playing. Uh, it, it comes close to the chest. I'm not sure. What I know for sure, obviously, is that there has been a lot of uh, resentment. A lot, a lot of people think as if Ichilema is a sellout to the United States and the West in general. That is the reaction that I remember spread from Zambia's in January. But after that, I really haven't heard any headway on that. Interesting that you talk about the question of the sellout to the Americans, because when I was in Washington this summer, talking to lots of folks there, both on the legislative side and the executive side, of town, there is a perception in Washington that Hishulema is their guy and that he is pro-America, anti-Chinese, and that they can count on him. And all I had to say to them was like, folks, take a look at his Twitter feed and take a look at every single time the question of the Chinese comes up to Hishulema, he is one of their most vocal and passionate defenders. 
when right after the Paris deal was announced, he sat down, I think it was with Bloomberg, and they said, do you blame China for the delays? And he said, absolutely not. China is our friend. China is our partner. You see picture after picture in his Twitter feed of him with the ambassador. You see him with calls to Xi. And he's even talking about visiting Beijing before the end of the year. So I said to these Americans, I said, where are you getting the idea that he is somehow on Team USA anti-China? It's just delusional of the highest order. It is because, you know, they were so antagonized by Edgar Lungu that they were really desperate to have each other status. And that, uh, the, the United States in particular is desperate for a feel-good story out of Southern Africa. They would have loved if Ramaphosa was not confronted by scandals of corruption, hiding money in his mattresses and all that kind of stuff. We would have been a perfect stand-up guy to say, okay, that's our point, man. The way Tabombeki was to George W. Bush. They would have wanted that. But with the crisis that South Africa is in, uh, relentless electricity blackouts, uh, relentless unceasing attacks of corruption. So they look at each of them and think, okay, this is our person. Uh, last week when each of them was in Israel, the president of Israel said, the Americans called him and said, are you going to meet each of them? And when the president of Israel said yes, and they said yes, each of them is the best president. I mean, all that flattery, it is really, really self-imposed deception on the part of the United States. Let me give two examples. First of all, as I already said uh, earlier on, uh, he is very close to the Chinese for, for historical purposes and for pragmatic purposes. Well, we owe the Chinese a lot of money and then uh, they have invested heavily on Zambia's infrastructure. Even on issues that do not have anything to do with China, by the way. Yichinama is not a president in the American model, an ideal African president. I couldn't help but blush with embarrassment when on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly, Ishirama was asked about the LGBTQ question and he said homosexuality is a choice. I mean, he is driven by this conservative church, the Seventh-day Adventist, and he shows this amazing ignorance about a controversial issue, calling homosexuality a choice. So that actually is almost a textbook illustration of how Edgar Lungu asked Daniel Foote, the previous American ambassador to Zambia, to leave the country when Edgar Lungu put two men in jail for 15 years for kissing. I mean, this is in a country, by the way, where poaching even carries a lesser sentence. So if you look at those things, it is really self-delusion of all the Americans to think as if Ichilema is their guy. He is blatantly homophobic. He is obviously on the side of China in terms of uh, the economic realities that Zambia imposes on him. So after the Zambian debt deal was announced, they're now kind of moving towards dealing with all of their private creditors. So I was wondering, you know, just how you think the next chapter of the debt saga will go and what the kind of political fallout will be on Ishilema himself in the longer run. At the moment, I don't think Ichilema, the United Party for National Development, the UPND government, is doing a great job in messaging. What ordinary Zambians are saying, from my own research, is that they do not really care about the intricacies of this debt restructuring process, by the way. The ordinary Zambians care is the fact that last week, 25 kilograms of millimeter was 250 quarter, today is 300 quarter. That is all that impinges on ordinary Zambians. And the government has not done a great job of telling them there have to be certain measures because this debt restructuring comes with a lot of conditionalities. And... Another thing that a lot of Zambians and the UPND government is not saying, by the way, is that 
This debt restructuring that was consummated on the 22nd of June is bilateral trade, by the way, to countries such as China, countries such as France, and countries such as South Africa. We still have, as you rightly put it, Corpus, the debt to private investors. That has not been talked about. I actually am actually equally in the dark as many ordinary Zambians about that and how, how that is going to be sorted out. So the political fallout, especially for each of them, is just about three years away now from the next election, is that, yes, a lot of Zambians have been antagonized. A lot of Zambians are going to be forced to sacrifice whilst, by the way, the political elite are being seen to leave it up. And uh, the members of the previous regime in Zambia flaunting a massive amount of money, money that was not commensurate to their declared salaries, by the way, are being left scot-free. So if there is no meaningful movement on that, then we'll see a very big a political fallout against the UPND. But what will save Ichileba better, uh, what will save Ichileba even more, what gives him insurance, political insurance, so to say, is the fact that at the moment, the real opposition that Ichilema has is the civil society and the youth, not any organized political party. Unfortunately, for Zambia's democracy, that is the case as it stands. Yes, but that's a very fickle constituency because, as you rightly pointed out, all politics comes down to your pocketbook. And if the youth do not look at their fortunes as being better in two and a half years when the election is really underway than it was when President Tishilema first came to power, then he will watch that youth vote that powered him into the presidency to walk away very quickly. And that's why he's got to get this debt situation under control, because he came into power promising that he was going to solve the debt problem. And he's not moved very fast, and it's not up to him again. We can put a lot on his plate here to say it's your responsibility, but the Chinese have been slow. As you pointed out, the private creditors are not moving fast. The Americans really haven't done anything other than complain and moan and groan and whinge about the Chinese. So we don't have a lot of action going on by the forces outside of Hishilema. But at the end of the day, he promised he's got to deliver, and he's got about two years to do that before his voters kind of evaluate him and ask him, what did you really do? So, you know, he doesn't have a lot of time left. I mean, that's for sure. The youth are keeping a very good scorecard. And in the world of social media, every now and then, by the way, we get all these uh, pop-ups of tweets that Ichilema used to post at the time when he was uh, in the opposition. So my only fear is that rather than these youths changing their votes, as they did against Lungu, by the way, from 2016 to 2021, we'll see a situation that if there is not an organized opposition party in Zambia, we will see a situation where the disillusioned voters will rather just abscond the votes, not vote at all, rather than vote for an alternative. And I think that is very bad for politics, and it, will, it might give each of them some undue endorsement, which will even allow him into more self-congratulation. Matambo, you have been so generous with your time today, and it's always fascinating and enlightening to speak with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Emmanuel Matambo is the research director at the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg. And again, as you're hearing, one of the smartest scholars out there on Zambia, on BRICS, on so many of the issues that we cover so regularly, which is why we're always thrilled to have Matambo back to join us. Matambo, if people want to connect with you and follow what you're reading and writing, what is the best place for them to find you on social media? Before I do that, may I just render my gratitude to you, Eric, as well, and to Kobus. Thank you for always keeping me in mind when you have these fascinating discussions. So I look forward to more engagements, by the way. It is our pleasure, and you humble us. And uh, so we really appreciate it. We really do appreciate it. Thank you. I am on Twitter at EK Matambo. That's my Twitter handle. 
on Facebook, the same thing as well, EK and then uh, Matambo. And then I'm also at the, just go to the Center for Africa China Studies website at the University of Johannesburg. You'll find my contact details there. And then my work email address is emadambo at uj.se.za. Thank you very much. Fantastic. We are going to put links to all of that in the show notes. So make sure that if you want to stay on top of everything Matambo's doing, you can follow him on Twitter, known as X now. And uh, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Matambo. Kobus, every time we have Matambo join us on the show, it feels like we literally are at a dinner party and there's food spread out all over the place and there's wine and there's just great conversation and you want the night to go on, you know, all night long. And that's the joy of having a guy like this who's just, I mean, he's just like a walking Google and, uh, you know, it's fantastic. And I just, I really, again, want to go back to some of the BRICS points again that I think in hindsight, as I was listening to you guys and what your points are, as animated as I was at the beginning of the show, and this for some reason puts caffeine in my coffee, I don't know why, but we're all kind of saying the same thing here, that it's not substantive, it's optics, but the optics matter. The optics are important. And that's, again, why the keyboard jockeys on Twitter who are just saying bricks are nothing, it's not worth anything, or some of the U.S. officials who are saying, well, there's nothing there, I think are missing the point. It's the same mistake that people made when they saw Donald Trump running for president and they said, this guy has no substance, because fundamentally they didn't understand the grievance that was propelling him. And I'm not entirely sure that the people in Europe, Tokyo, and Washington fundamentally understand the grievance that's propelling the BRICS. And I think you got to get to that. You call it resentment. I call it grievance. We're kind of saying the same thing here. But don't expect substance to come out of it. But the grievance is critically important. For me, what will be really interesting is to see, you know, kind of how the discussions about BRICS enlargement go. You know, I, I agree with you. I think I think Iran is a long shot. And I think also Iran would probably be bad for the group. It's too provocative. Way too provocative. I mean, it just antagonizes people when you bring them into the picture. And unnecessarily. I think some of the other kind of prospective members are a lot more interesting in terms of what will happen when they get in. I tend to think Indonesia, very, very interesting. And also if Saudi Arabia gets in, that's a game changer. I think UAE to a certain extent as well. So, you know, like one thing that any kind of like addition to this mix will definitely complicate the relationship between these countries more. And it will certainly kind of, I think, add complication to the position of Russia in all of this. So all of this is just going to be, it's fascinating. It's kind of soap opera-y, you know, in the sense of just, you just kind of want to get popcorn and keep watching. Well, so we're going to invite some folks later, after all the news settles from the BRICS next week, we're going to wait a week or two to do that. You'll be in Berlin by then, so you'll be settled in Germany. And we're going to wait, and let's you know, talk to people to see what actually happened. And so look for us to have a show on BRICS follow-up towards the end of the month, and we'll go from there. Okay, just before we go, I want to just really take a hard pivot and really call your attention to something unbelievable that happened last Friday night on national television in China. It is just eye-watering what happened. So 26-year-old South African musician Motsweri Modiba, who goes by the stage name Mo, she became 
the first, what they call black and African, that's how they described it on Chinese media. She was the first contestant to participate in one of China's biggest singing competitions called Sing China. Now, this is a show, if you've ever seen The Voice, uh, it's exactly, it's basically a copy of The Voice. And she just killed it. Uh, you can't overstate how important what she did was. People were telling me, like Chinese people were watching this mesmerized that she spoke and sang flawlessly with no accent. And the judges were turned around. So like on The Voice, you can't, they can't see the contestant. And when they flipped around, they couldn't believe that she was a foreigner. Let's take a listen to her right now very quickly. So imagine singing Kobus on national television in the second largest country in the world on a massive stage. This was the first round of the competition, so the stakes were pretty low. But had she messed up in any way, the blowback would have been massive on social media. Because we've already seen this before, right? I mean, a couple years ago, there was a young Congolese performer who is of mixed heritage. And she was just blasted on Chinese social media with just the most horrific racist things. What's incredible, though, about Mo is that the reaction on social media so far has been nothing but really positive. Okay, there's a little bit of characterization and, and kind of, you know, black people sing well. That's great. <laughs> But there's none of the toxicity that we saw last time. And people are just super excited about it. So, I don't know. I just thought this was incredible. I just thought it's amazing. I want to call attention to, to Mo and what she's done. And just to overemphasize how important this is and what an amazing thing she's accomplished. I mean, absolutely. You know, like, for, for me, two things. In the first place, she's obviously clearly an amazing singer. And... It's so awful and horrible for me the way that African talent in music is also used as a way to tear down Africa. But just for the record, South Africa is superpower in terms of music. You know, there's been now, I think, two or three successive waves of dance music emerging from South Africa, which has essentially revolutionized dance music around the world. South African DJs and South African music producers, many of whom live in very, very poor townships, you know, working on second-hand laptops, are being played in Berlin, they're being played in all, you know, kind of in clubs around the world. So in that sense, like South Africa has a musical kind of heritage that's really towering. But then this is also incredibly kind of like impressive in terms of just like kind of cultural performance, being able to master that mode of singing, doing it in flawless Mandarin, playing that entire like singing reality TV game show, you know, kind of like entertainment show game on the stage. It's staggering. An example of cultural competence that, that's difficult to beat, I think. It's so amazing. And again, it speaks to how many amazing young Africans are in China doing incredible things, who speak the language perfectly, have the cultural competence that you talk of. And again, this is one of the issues that we've raised on this show for years, is that there is a wasted resource here. 
of not taking advantage of that to enhance China-Africa relations, and that African governments and African companies are not doing enough to benefit from this incredible skill set. By the way, Mudiba, she learned Mandarin at a school in Pretoria, oh, and then studied in China <laughs> on a scholarship. Yeah, adding Mandarin to the curriculum, you know, it was controversial, but here we are. <laughs> there it is. It makes a lot of sense. Listen, learning other people's languages, whatever that language is, is amazing, okay? I have been studying Chinese for almost 40 years now, and I look at her with awe. I mean, just awe. So very important to give her a shout out. If you haven't seen the clip, even if you don't speak Chinese, you got to check this thing out. I'm going to put it in the show notes. You can go to our Twitter feed. You can also go to my LinkedIn page. Just look me up on LinkedIn and I've put it up there. It is remarkable. And let's see how far she goes in the competition. Uh, From the reaction of the audience and from the reaction of the judges, it looks like she might actually get some traction. And I am just so pleased this time around, at least so far, that the social media reaction to her has been really positive. And that's not something you take for granted in China because, man, their social media is just filled with toxicity. So the fact that she is being embraced, to me, is really just something wonderful. So, again, nice to end on a positive note. (laughs) I just, I was blown away by that. I just thought, and South Africa should be proud. South Africa should be very proud of what happened. Yeah, and South Africa hasn't noticed at all. That's the sad thing. Like, you know, it hasn't particularly kind of hit the media here very much. Well, no, News 24 picked it up. News 24 picked it up. Yeah, no, I'm glad about that. Yeah, yeah. The China connection working. (laughs) But I don't know. It would be a fun thing if like SABC did a little story on this. I mean, you would be great. Now, maybe they will. It's still relatively fresh. And maybe they want to see, let's see how far she goes in the competition. And that will be really important. But anyway, this is something for you guys to look at. Look at the video, listen to the song. She rocked it. Amazing. So let's leave the conversation there. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another edition of the show. If these are the issues that you love to follow and you just get nerdy and you want to stay on top of everything that's going on in the China Global South space, we would love for you to join our community of readers. Your subscription supports the work that Kobus, Jeho, Johnny, our China editor, Han Zhen, everybody's doing to put together this amazing content offering that is unique. There is nothing else like it out there. Everybody on our team is in the Global South, and everybody but me is from the Global South. And that's the way it's going to be as we continue to expand. We're only expanding with people from the Global South to provide that very distinctive perspective on these issues. We would love for you again to join our growing community of readers around the world. If you'd like to do that, go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. And if you're a student or teacher, you can email me directly, eric at chinaglobalsouth.com, and I will send you a 50% off discount link. So just make sure you use your school email address, or if you don't have one, tell me what school you are in, and that way I'll send you the link. So let's leave the conversation there. Kobus Knight will be back again next week. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at ChinaGSProject and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique Chine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K.
And you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.